Welcome to the Parenting with Impact podcast with your hosts, Elaine Taylor-Klaus and Diane Dempster, co-creators of ImpactParents.com, an online community, award-winning blog, and service organization, helping parents all over the world to raise complex kids become capable, independent adults. Elaine and Diane are certified coaches with personal experience raising children with challenges such as ADHD, anxiety, and more, and extensive experience in guiding parents to raise their complex kids with confidence and calm. On the podcast, Elaine and Diane interview experts, bringing you cutting-edge information about your child's challenges, teach you real-life strategies to create lasting change, and demonstrate how coaching can guide you to parent your complex kids one conversation at a time. For the essentials of Elaine and Diane's coach approach to parenting, download a free tip sheet at impactparents.com slash podcast. Welcome back, everybody, to another conversation in the Parenting with Impact podcast. I am really excited to have this conversation today because it's a hot topic that a lot of us talk about. A lot of us are, I would say, probably misinformed about. And so I am bringing you today a genuine, real, authentic expert on this topic. Dr. Kevin Anschel does research and is a clinician. So he's got that beautiful balance of being able to talk about what the data says, but also talk about what it's like in in practical experience. And as I understand it, you're doing recent research, current research on uh, stimulant diversion on, you tell us a little bit more on what brings you to that expertise rather than me trying to make it up. Sure. So thank you again for the invitation to participate. I think this Great is very you. important. Uh, it's a very important topic, and I appreciate the opportunity to speak on it. And so I'm on a college campus, and so I'm very aware of uh, the public health issue around stimulant diversion and stimulant misuse. Just to make sure we're all on the same page with terms, stimulant diversion is when a student who has a prescription for a stimulant medication either gives away or sells their own stimulant medication. Mm -hmm. Stimulant misuse is when a college student who does not have a prescription for that stimulant obtains the stimulants and uses the stimulant. And so I'm aware of the issue of diversion and misuse on a college campus. And I'm also aware that there really are not a lot of preventative efforts that are in place. And so five or six years ago, we approached a pharmaceutical company about developing a prevention intervention for college freshmen. And over the last five or six years, we've been pilot testing and refining, and now we're concluding a clinical trial that was looking at the efficacy of our prevention intervention. And it's targeted for college freshmen, and it is a combination of the use of motivational interviewing Uh, So kind of arranging the conversation so that the college students themselves talk about the advantages of not misusing a stimulant and the disadvantages of misusing a stimulant, and also using some of the techniques that are taught in cognitive behavioral therapy for adults ADHD. And so procrastination reduction, planning, organization, time management, et cetera, Uh, because we know a common reason that college students will misuse a stimulant is that they get themselves uh, behind in a class and they haven't organized their efforts. They procrastinated, they plan well, or they did not plan well. And then they will use the stimulant the night before uh, really as an anti-fatigue aid, a study aid. I've heard some college students describe it as an academic steroid. Right. And that is truly a myth that if you look at the data on 
stimulant misuse, it does not help the bottom line. It does not help GPA that, in fact, GPAs drop in those who misuse stimulants. All right, so let's stop before we get there, if I may, and kind of frame the conversation. So the context here is research on prevention intervention for, for college kids in terms of stimulant diversion and misuse. And I'm assuming from, from what you just said is that a kid with ADHD, for example, who has a stimulant medication could sometimes exercise diversion and could also sometimes exercise misuse. That's correct. So it's yes. not just the misuse is not just the non-ADD kids. It can go for both. That's correct. And so a college student with ADHD could technically engage in misuse if they use the prescription in a way that was not prescribed. In other words, right. they save up a couple of pills and they take a triple dose um, instead of a single dose. Got it. Okay. So when you and I first started talking today, I, I asked you, what do you want parents to understand about this? So before we get into the nitty gritty, the data of what, what it does and doesn't show, what's important for parents? You started to talk about a double-edged sword and I said, let's save that for this conversation. So what do you think is important for parents and providers to understand about this issue when we're still in this context before we get into the details? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I often use that analogy of a double-edged sword and that the prescription stimulants, there is quite strong evidence and they're also in the practice parameter guidelines for just about every professional society you could imagine as an effective treatment for ADHD. And so it's an important component of treatment and the prescription and the, the stimulant prescriptions have increased over the last 10, 20 years. As our awareness and understanding of the condition has increased over the last 20 years. That's correct. Yep. Yeah. And, other... and just can we just take a quick detour there? Because I have the opportunity to have you say this out loud. When kids are have ADHD and are, are diagnosed with it and then recommended treatment with stimulant medication, does that increase their risk of addiction? Or do we have any like quick bottom line information about the relationship? Because a lot of parents listening part of the fear of stimulant medication is a fear of addiction. Can sure. you just address that quickly? Yeah, sure. Yeah. Um, so this is an easy answer. Actually, the data suggests the opposite, that the use of stimulant medication actually helps to lower the risk for eventual addiction or substance use disorder. And we believe the mechanism is improved performance in school and also that they tend to gravitate more towards kids who are also doing well in school. And so it, if you look at the longitudinal data, it does not increase the risk for substance use. And we have, uh, um, we have two dozen, three dozen studies that would suggest this. And so this is a pretty well-replicated finding. Okay. So yes, kids with ADHD are at higher risk of substance abuse, but when you start treated with stimulant medication, it actually reduces the risk. Reduces the risk. And we think the mechanism is improved performance at school. Great. Awesome. Okay. Thank you for that little diversion. I think it was useful. Sure. So back to the double-edged sword. On the one hand, we know that stimulant medication can be really helpful for some kids. Yes. On the other hand, we know that these are medications that people who do not have ADHD diagnoses are interested in. And so we know that diversion um, is unfortunately common, and particularly in college students, that about two-thirds of college students with ADHD have diverted their medication. And so this is something that uh, on the one hand, we have an evidence-based intervention. On the other hand, there is some interest from, from people without ADHD for this intervention. 
and uh, they tend to approach the college students who have the prescription. Right. Okay. So you've got a problem with diversion and misuse. You have a, a need for it. When you're talking about this intervention, are you working with college freshmen before they get to campus or once they get to campus? Now, so our prevention intervention is designed to be delivered in the first several weeks of their fall semester. Okay. Um, and so we are recruiting students who are stimulant naive. So our approach is a prevention intervention as opposed to a treatment. Um, in other words, we're trying to prevent it from happening in the first place. So we're interested in those who have not misused the stimulant. Unfortunately, so, so let's, let's define stimulant naive. Sure. It is an individual who has never had a stimulant. So this is not for the kids who have the stimulants. You're talking about the kids who don't. Correct. Yep. Right. Okay. I misunderstood that. So glad we clarified that. So you're recruiting students who may not have been diagnosed, do not have medication, and want to educate them about the reality of stimulants. Yes. Okay. And what do you want them to know? Sure. We are really trying to get across that two things. Number one, not everybody is doing it. And so you ask the average college student what percentage of people are misusing a stimulants, and the numbers are usually north of 80% that they think this is very common. Everybody is doing it. And in actuality, the true numbers are somewhere in the teens. I've seen anywhere from 15 to 18%. And so that this isn't as common as everybody thinks it is. And then also number two, that the outcomes are not as rosy as they may envision. So for example, the average college student believes that a stimulant is an academic steroid, that it's going to help their GPA. Actually, if you look at the data, it's the opposite, that people who misuse stimulants are at risk for a drop in their GPA. Um, and so those are two things that we try to get across to the college students. Can you we- explain the drop in the GPA? I'm sorry to interrupt. And if you want to finish that thought, that's cool. But Sure, sure. Yeah. So the drop in the GPA is really, we track these individuals across time. And so we're looking at four groups of people, people who have never misused the stimulant, people who did not misuse the stimulant at time one, yet they initiated misuse at time two, people that were reporting misusing a stimulant at time one, but ceased and desisted by time two, And then the group that was misusing at time one and continued to misuse at time two. The group that continued to misuse at time one and at time two was the only group that had a drop in GPA. And so we think that the continued misuse of stimulants is not quite the academic benefit that these students probably believe. So because I got a little lost in the time A and time B, but I think I heard that some kids, even if they misuse it, if they stop, it's going to, it will prevent the drop in the GPA. Is that correct? correct? Yep, that's correct. And so misusing, let's say as a sophomore, and then as a junior, they're no longer misusing. The data suggests that that groups either has a stable GPA or somewhat improved. Okay. So then you started to say before I interrupted, I'm sorry, that what you want these kids to understand you started to say the outcome is not as rosy and kind of describe the, the four groups. What you're trying to get them to understand is. Sure. Yeah. That their expectations are out of whack. Okay. Uh, that they believe it's going to, they believe it's going to do something that it isn't. Okay. Now in any of this work, are you talking to the kids who do have the stimulant medication? 
Yep, and so this is a completely separate project. Okay. Uh, and so we are and so we are looking at diversion. And it's been our experience and also others in the field would say if you wait to college students to talk about diversion, it's too late. That you have Agreed. to get to, that you have to get to the high school students. And so our projects or our work on diversion and reducing diversion is really targeting them when they live at home still. Okay. So when you're targeting, I'm curious because now you're in, you're stepping into the, my territory a little bit in terms of parent work, when you're providing education for kids in high school, is there a component that's incorporating the parents in that conversation? Yes. Yes. Tell, tell me about that a little bit. Yep. And so talking with the parents about parenting behaviors and also the qualities of the parent-teen relationships that are associated with a, a reduction in diversion risk. And so, for example, parenting behaviors is having supervision, closely monitoring the stimulant, not taking over the administration of the stimulant, but closely monitoring pill counts, closely, closely monitoring the prescription refills, also communicating with the teen about um, how to handle if a peer approaches them with a diversion request. And then also qualities of the parent-teen, qualities of the relationship. And so having Mm -hmm. high levels of warmth, high levels of acceptance, high levels of support, you know, what we used to refer to as authoritative parenting, that you have high expectations, but you also ground those expectations in um, an environment of warmth and support. And so we talk with the parents about these, about these types of things. We also talk with the parents about other known factors that increase the risk for diversion. And this includes bullying. And so mm-hmm. if your child is reported getting bullied, particularly frequently, either online, virtual, or in person, that unfortunately is a risk factor for, mis- for diverting their stimulant. And so a child that's a target for frequent peer victimization is a risk. And so we yeah. ask the parents, is this something that's happening? And then the other risk factor is probably not at all surprising to your audience is that's kids that are misusing other substances. And so high school students that are misusing cannabis or misusing alcohol, those individuals are also a risk. And so we talk with the parents about these known risk factors. So I'm just curious, and, and I don't want to go too far down this, but when we when you talk with parents about that, are you giving the parents strategies for having these conversations with their kids or raising awareness to it? What's the approach? Yes. And to answer your question, it's to both. Yes and yes. Okay. And so um, in our clinic, we do a lot of role playing. Uh, mm-hmm. We do a lot of role playing with the parent, obviously, when the teen is not in the room. And we do a lot of role playing really in a bi-directional way that at times I'm the team and I'm interested in how the parent is going to handle this. And then uh, we're able to give the parents some feedback. And then also times where I am the parent and the particular parent gets to channel their inner teenager and try to ask the questions or make the comments that they believe are realistic. And so we do a lot of role playing around this issue. I got to say, that's one of my favorite parts of my job. (laughs) Yeah, so role playing is fun. I like yeah. uh, the dramatic side uh, uh, to be in a clinician, and so yeah, we do that. Uh, we do that in the absence of the teen, though. Yeah. Okay. So 
I'm hearing that when it comes to preparing, the focus on preventing diversion starts in high school, and there's work directly with the teen as well as as with the parents to really improve relationship dynamics, communication patterns, set expectations about diversion and how to handle diversion requests. What guidance do you offer parents in terms of the actual logistic of the medication on campus when they get to college? What do you offer to the parents and teens about how to anticipate and handle it? Because I've heard lots of things from every kid should have a lockbox to nobody should tell their friends that they have meds to, you know, all across the board. We landed on, you know, one of those safe books that they looks like a book on the shelf, but it actually has, you know, a compartment in it. So what are, what's, what are the recommendations? Sure. Yeah, this is a good one. Uh, it's a great question. And, and I think before I talk about what we talk about with the parent, I want to make sure that it's clear to your audience that the parents shouldn't be doing this alone. Great. They should definitely have the primary care physician or whoever is prescribing. Or coach or that, therapist. or Yeah. Yep. Yep. And so that person should also be having ongoing conversations with the student before they leave for college. Yes. Thank you. So I want you to say that again. The, sure. the prescribing physician and or therapist who are working with a student ideally would actually be having con- conscious conversations with students about how to prevent medication diversion in college. Yes. Absolutely. Yep. And so this should not just rest on the parent. Yep. Great. So that to parents out there, that means you're allowed to ask your provider to have that conversation with your kids if you feel like they aren't, or if your students are telling you that they aren't. It is absolutely appropriate to make that request. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. Okay. Yes. And actually, if you're looking for research about how the providers could have that conversation, my colleague at the University of Pittsburgh, Brooke Molina, M-O-L-I-N-A. She's done a lot of research on training providers. Great. I'll get a link for y'all and put it in the show notes. So you were about to tell us, what do you recommend in terms of the actual med on campus? Yep. Well, actually, you hit on two of the primary recommendations that they should not publicize this stimulant medication. That's not something that should be publicly um, advertised. Hey, Asha should store the medication in a concealed lock container. And so you hit on two of the things that are commonly and routinely recommended to parents and also the primary care. We'll talk with the teen about this before they leave. But also talking and having these conversations using a motivational interviewing framework. So for example, approaching them by trying to scare them that they're that they're going to commit a felony or they're going to be in trouble with the law, that almost always doesn't work for the teens that we should be concerned about. I mean, it's going to work for the teens that we shouldn't be concerned about in the first place. Uh, But the ones that we are concerned about, that type of scare approach doesn't work usually. Well, and for the parents listening who are part of our community, when we're talking about motivational interviewing, it's very much in, in alignment with what you're learning in terms of the coach approach. So the languages, the tools, the techniques that we're teaching you in terms of how to have these, these collaborative conversations is what Dr. Angel's talking about. Yep, absolutely. Good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you. Uh, I'm sorry if I'm not. Uh, no, you're, it's, it's fabulous. 
anything else? Because it's time for us. I told you it was going to go fast. Sure. It's time to start wrapping up this conversation. Is there anything else? Well, first, let's tell people how they can get in touch with you or what, how they can get more information about this. Sure. Yeah. I think for parents who are looking for more information, the Chad website has, has, they really have a number of really helpful resources that are very concrete and practical. They're very how-to resources. And so I direct people routinely to the Chad website. Okay. And that's chad.org. We'll put it in the show notes along with some references to Dr. Molina. And you, just so people know who you are and where you are, Dr. Angel, you're at Syracuse University, is that correct? Sure, yes, yes. And so I am at Syracuse University. I'm the Department of Psychology, and I'm a professor of psychology. And so we'll get a link to your bio page or page at the university as well, if people want to find out more about you. So as we begin to wrap up this conversation, is there anything we missed, anything you'd like to share with listeners? I know there's a wealth of information we haven't covered, but in terms of today's conversation, anything else you'd like to share or something you hope that parents will take away from today, parents or providers? Sure. Yeah. I think, again, I think for the parents who are concerned about their child with ADHD going to college, a particularly high-risk group for diversion are those that are involved in the Greek system. And Mm. so fraternities and sororities. And so again, I'm not telling parents not to have their child join the Greek system. That's not what I am saying. I am saying uh, for those children who end up in the Greek system who have a prescription stimulant, that is the number one highest risk group for being approached for diversion. So being approached, and let's let's make that distinction, right? Part of the reason it's so high risk is because there's a much larger kind of target audience to, to approach them and use coercion. Let's be serious. The Greek system for freshmen, it's all about coercion. Sure. Yes. Right. Yes. And so they're interested in they're interested in um, making friends and somehow they make decisions that are really that are really completely, uh, completely grounded in what they think that other person wants. Yeah. Okay. So really looking at, at the risk factors, including so again, those conversations in high school are, are the most effective thing you can do to prevent. I'm That's curious correct. whether in your research, there's some consideration of going into any fraternities and seeing what would happen if you provided the education there. Yeah. Yep. Well, actually there are, uh, I mean, we're not doing that here, but there for sure are other programs around the country that really are targeting the Greek system. And again, I have to tell you that the evidence is kind of equivocal. There are some programs that seem to help and other programs that really don't do much. And so that can be a challenging group to convince uh, that this isn't something that's in their best long-term interest. Yeah. Well, it just seems so counterintuitive, you know, as someone who may may or may not have pulled some all-nighters in college, right? The notion that something that would help have helped me do that wouldn't have helped me long-term is, you know, when the brain's not fully cooked and ready to understand that, I can see how that might not yes. yep, absolutely. get across. Anything else today before I, I ask, I, I hit you with our final, final button question. Sure. sure. So, no, think- so our, our final question, well, go ahead. You think? Yeah, no, I was going to say, I think you've done a, I think you've done a masterful job of asking all the questions uh, on the topics that I wanted to highlight. So uh, you've done great. Excellent. <laughs> well, I, I often say my job is to translate doctors into human, into, into lay people, <laughs> <laughs> and to try to really bring it down 
because we're talking about really complicated stuff. And, and if we can simplify it and make it digestible and understandable, then we can do something with that information. And in, in our coaching world, it's all about taking information and putting it into practice. And the information is not usable unless we can, is not it's not important unless we can actually use it to improve the dynamics that, that we're trying to address. So that's kind of, that's our come from. As I told you, we, we always like to wrap with a final question of our guests. What is your favorite motto or quote with something you'd like to share with our, with our audience? Sure. Yeah. So this is a quote from Shannon Adler, his name, and it is really about the importance of social support. And so her quote is, Illness becomes wellness when we substitute I for we. Love that. Illness becomes wellness when we substitute I for we. And, you know, at Impact, we are all about about stepping out of the classic medical model that says these kids are broken, let's fix them. And into a wellness model that says these kids are amazing, let's guide them and support them and help them be their, reach their full potential. So that is a perfect motto for us. And I appreciate it greatly. I, I think I will use it again. So I appreciate learning it. Sure. Dr. Angela, thank you. This has been a wealth of information encapsulated succinctly. And I really appreciate your ability to do that. And I really want to acknowledge and honor the work that you're doing as, as a parent of complex kids. It's, it's always really a good reminder and helpful to know that there are people out there who are taking the challenges that our kids are facing seriously and really learning and continuing to learn about how do we support them better and better. So thank you for the work you're doing and for being a guest with us today. Sure. So again, thank you for the invitation and the opportunity to talk about this important issue. Truly a pleasure. And to those of you listening, once again, thanks for tuning in. Uh, spread the word, share it. I know this is going to be one of those podcasts that I see on the forum, like shared again and again and again. So, so bring it out to the world, let people know who need it. And I think my real takeaway is, is let's make sure this gets in the hands, not of just people in our neurodiversity community, but outside. Because what I'm hearing is really important here is how important it is to, to educate the general population on this issue. So once again, thank you. I encourage you to take this brief interview, bring it to your schools, bring it to your school counselors, um, bring it to your providers, and let's, let's get the word out. Take care, everybody. We'll see you on the next one. You've been listening to the Parenting with Impact podcast with Elaine and Diane. For more information on the Impact Parents community or to join Sanity School for Parents, please visit impactparents.com. If you like what you've heard, please share this podcast with friends who need similar guidance and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.